trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Our program is brought to you by great sponsors like LifesavingFood.com, also the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage and MonticelloCollege.org. This is where we get together on a regular basis to engage in wrong think and also to let you know about good things that are happening. Oh, trust me, if I wanted to sit around and complain about what was wrong, well, I could be doing a 12-hour daily show. Just ask my family, right? They'll tell you that's what he does, all right. Anyway, I want to welcome a couple of great guests to the program. I want to welcome uh, Porter and, and sorry, Michelle North. <laughs> my, uh, sorry, my, my writing is terrible, and I had to double-check. I welcome both of you. I understand that the two of you are involved with a very important fundraiser that's going to be taking place soon. And this is in support of Operation Underground Railroad. While you can't speak for the organization, you can certainly tell our listeners a little bit about this and the work that you're involved in. Um, First, just tell me a little bit about yourselves. It sounds like the two of you are pretty freedom-oriented individuals. Sure. Uh, We are, no doubt. Um, And it's funny, Brian, when you were doing this, you see my son's name, Porter, come up. Sorry. Kish. No, that's perfectly fine. It's Kish. It's Kish. he, he's as much a freedom fighter as I am. That's <laughs> yes, for sure. So, um, yeah, we, we do a lot of work in the community and in, in different uh, functions, but this is a big function for us. Um, we've been part of this for five years plus now. And my wife took the uh, role on last year for this fundraiser and uh, she could speak a lot about it, but we're, it's really dear to our hearts on obviously uh, for us being an abolitionist. Um, we've got six children of our own. And uh, we want to be a voice for children that don't have a voice. Yes, thank you for having us and for letting us share our passion. Um, we're extremely passionate about um, eradicating human trafficking. And how we found out about Operation Underground Railroad is um, five years ago, or actually six years ago, when we moved out here, um, we were looking for a CrossFit place. And on TV, they just so happened to be um, – talking about the new Operation Underground Railroad CrossFit in Draper, Utah. And so Kish and I went over there and we signed up. And of course, being a part of that gym, your dues, the gym dues go back to um, OUR. So we signed up and then that's how we got to know a lot of people. Um, We would see Tim periodically. We would see um, Matt Cooper, which um, that is Tim's like best friend. And he actually became our CrossFit coach. So we kind of know him really well. He's a great guy. Um, So then there was an event that was happening and my husband volunteered my baking goods um, because he knows that I love to bake. So that's how we started out the first um, three years with um, doing this gift of freedom. Um, So can I just get into telling you about gift of freedom? Yeah, absolutely. Um, One thing I want to make clear, and this is, this is primarily for my Utah listeners um, there is an event coming up that we're going to be talking about and we want them to be able to participate in. So just if, if you're in Utah, you need to be, you know, keeping an ear yes. to, the, to the speaker. But tell me, tell me about Gift of Freedom. So Gift of Freedom was started five years ago 
um, by a lady named Brittany Carpenter. Her dream was to bring the community together, um, have them bring anything that they wanted to bring, kind of like a yard yard um, cell, um, a cell, yard cell. Um, and so from the past five years, it's kind of grown into asking businesses to donate their product. So it went from used product to now brand new product. So the gift of freedom, it is a family friendly event where the, you can bring the kids and we have, um, it's a boutique style shopping. So everyone can come and do their early holiday shopping, um, and, um, there's bounce houses for the kids. There'll be um, superheroes. We sell things like ki- kids' um, toys and books, um, jewelry, you name it. There's a lot of things there, home decor, furniture. And you get to shop knowing that 100% of the proceeds go back to Operation Underground Railroad. So this event is put on by sponsors, my committee, and um, just the community. Wow. Well, I, let's talk a little bit about uh, human trafficking. When we think of this, or at least when I think of this, the first thing I think of is, oh, yeah, I'm sure in some far-off place like Sudan, you know, they're, they're trafficking in humans. I know in, uh, in Libya, for instance, there are open-air slave markets. But uh, human trafficking actually is a lot closer to home than that. It's not just something far off in Africa. Like This isn't like, let's feed the starving children on the other side of the world. We're talking about addressing a, a problem that impacts people right here in a first world nation, probably in ways we wouldn't think about. Give us an idea of, of what this pro- the scope of this problem. I, Michelle came, and I can speak of that as well, too, with the things I do. One of the biggest uh, prevalent um, issues in America, this is one of the things that uh, one of the founding fathers of OUR and other uh, groups that do this is, the problem here in America, we always think of what's going on in the third world countries, but it's right in our backyards. Um, you look at what happens at the Super Bowl. Uh, if you do some stats and research, one of the largest days and weeks of uh, predatory predators preying on children is the Super Bowl. Uh, that weekend, it's incredible the amount of kids that are trafficked at that point in time. It's quite sad. But you're so right. When people hear that, they think it's in third world countries where where it is. It is prevalent in third world countries. Haiti, for instance, is one of the largest places where kids are trafficked. Right. But it is in our backyard. You're talking Florida. It's prevalent. You're talking about the borders now. You're talking about the border of Mexico into into our country, uh, underground trafficking. And we see it online, uh, real factual things online where children are being trafficked through parents that aren't even their parents coming across the border. Um, and to me that this is, this is a pandemic in and of itself that needs to be addressed. How did, how did the two of you um, become connected with, with this, this fundraising part of operation underground railroad? I'm familiar with Tim Ballard. I'm familiar with some of the work that he's done. I've heard uh, some, some great reports from people who have worked with him what, uh, what was it that uh, brought you into the same orbit? Well, like Michelle said, we joined the CrossFit gym, and then uh, OUR was having an event up in Draper and uh, the, gala. the gala, and we met a couple gentlemen. We met um, Ed, Smart. Uh, Ed Smart, Elizabeth Smart's dad, mm-hmm. and he was very much involved at the time and still is, I think, in the background. But we got there, and that's really how we found a passion for this and found out that it was really 
relevant today. Wouldn't you agree, honey? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We, we wanted to do something. We wanted to raise money, but we didn't know how. Yeah. Have, have you done fundraising efforts before? For other causes, we have, yeah. Okay. I just, the reason I ask is because people who, who are not familiar with how fundraising takes place probably have no idea about the amount of behind the scenes work, the hours and hours of organizing and networking and, and uh, working with other people to make it happen. So yeah, I, and I, I appreciate this interview because it's the first time I've seen my wife in a few weeks. She's worked so hard <laughs> at this event, but it's true. It takes a lot of energy and it takes some true passion. I, I mean, I'm so proud of my wife. She does so much for this and it, uh, it, it not disrupts it. Really, if you look at it, it could disrupt your home, or you can look like it adds value to your home mm-hmm. when you're doing this. So I try to always, even though it could affect me, like it affects the home because it takes away. If you include the family, it actually adds value, right? It teaches the children multiple things. I find it as a big blessing. Um, I find as I'm working and I'm doing these things, I just got home from Spanish Fork. I ran out there to um, go to our storage because right now is the time where we're gathering all the stuff that we've collected from the businesses and we have to price it and we have to get it all ready. Um, But I find it as a a, a blessing. Um, Somebody has to do this. Somebody has to do this work. Like you were mentioning a while ago, um, human trafficking is one of the biggest growing businesses right now. You can sell a kid up to 30 plus times a day, the same child. Um, And that's why it's, it's a bigger business than selling drugs because you can only sell drugs once, but a child up to 30 times a day or or more. It's a renewable Mm -hmm. resource are the two words. Yes. Yes. And, and, and I apologize for asking for the clarification here, but um, when we talk about, you know, them selling a child, we're talking about selling them into a sexual situation. Is that correct? Like correct. prostitution. Yes. Oh my yes. word. Yes. Wow. And, yes. And so somebody needs to uh, do something about it. Um, and it, and the last time that I checked, and this was a couple of years ago, it takes anywhere from five to $10,000 to rescue one child. So sometimes people think, oh, you know, OUR, they have a lot of sponsors. Well, yeah, they may have a lot of sponsors, but every day they need to be raising money because every child, it costs money. Okay, we've got to take a very quick break. I am I'm visiting right now with uh, Michelle and Kish North. We've, we've promoted uh, Kish from Porter to Kish. <laughs> He's back in the driver's seat. We'll take a quick break, pay a couple of bills, and we'll be back right after these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I have a couple special guests joining me today to talk about something that you should know about. It's an event that's coming up that uh, you could actually play a key role in supporting something very worthwhile. I'm talking with Kish and Michelle North, and let's let's talk about the event. First of all, just because people are very uh, online-oriented, is there a website or somewhere where you can direct them to, to get some information? Yes, they can go to ourrescue.org. Click on events, and under the events, they will see the gift of freedom. And the dates are October 8th and 9th. It's a two-day event this year. Okay, and where will this be taking place? Um, This will be at the Experience Event Center in Provo, Utah. 
Okay, I have listeners throughout the state of Utah, and I would even encourage those of you who may ask to travel, even by plane or train if necessary, maybe you should consider going to this event. Let's talk about uh, what the event will look like, um, who is going to be there, because I, I expect you're going to probably see some, some pretty recognizable names in attendance. Yes, so the our two-day event on October 8th, the hours are from 5 p.m. to 10 p.m., and it is well worth the ticket price. So we're going to start off the evening at 5 p.m. Doors will open. Um, then we're going to be serving a nice, elegant buffet dinner served by um, Utah Custom Catering. And um, they will be serving a chef-carved um, beef uh, with au jus cream horseradish, chicken marsala, um, some roasted baby potatoes, some squash medley, a summer salad, um, fresh rolls, and dessert. Oh, man. Um, you are so, making me yeah. so hungry. Am I making <laughs> right. you hungry? Yes, it's going to be a really nice, elegant buffet dinner. Then on top of that, we are going to be having a Halloween performance by Warehouse Five Drum Theater. It's from the composer of Tummy Talk. And um, they were seen on America's Got Talent. And if you also go to YouTube, they have over a million um, views. So um, that's going to be a great performance. What they're going to do is they are going to give uh, perform a Halloween show. It's called Paranormal Percussion. So um, imagine hearing the song Halloween um, or like um, some kind of song from your uh, a horror movie. So they're going to be like the Nightmare Before Christmas and stuff like that. What they do is they play it with a full percussion um, ensemble of instruments um, like um, drums and um, cymbals. Yeah, cymbals, all, all of those uh, and, instruments. And they play on their stomachs. They did that one on uh, America's Got Talent. They yeah. were on the okay. live. Okay, so then, I was hoping. <laughs> then we are going to be blessed to hear from the one and only Tim Ballard. He is going to be our guest speaker, and he is going to be um, talking about Operation Underground Railroad, and he's also going to be talking about the documentary. Um, it's called Operation Triple Take. Uh, we are going to be showing that after Tim speaks. Um, so Operation Triple Take is, like I said, has never been seen before anywhere. Um, in this documentary, it's about three of the sting operations that took place in Colombia um, at the same time. I don't know if you've heard of the movie The Sound of Freedom that um, Operation Underground Railroad um, has done. It's a story about Tim Ballard, and it's about one of those sting operations in uh, Colombia that took place. This um, documentary is about three of the sting operations. So uh, we're very excited to be able to play that for um, the public. And this will be the first so, public public showing of that movie. Yeah. Yes, the first wow. public. So you get dinner, you get Tim Ballard, you get a great Halloween um, performance by Warehouse Five Drum, and then you get um, Operation Triple Take. Okay. And that, that happens on Friday night. So and then uh, so tickets are on sale right now. Go to OURrescue.org, click on events, and then you'll um, be able to get in there and purchase a ticket. Uh, we only have a limited number of seats, so get those tickets fast. So on Saturday at the Experience Event Center as well, it goes from 9 to 4 p.m. Doors open at 9, and um, you will see a whole room filled with donations from businesses, 
from individuals. We get ladies who love to sew, who sew things and we sell it. Um, there's home decor, like I said, toys, jewelry, books, you name it. Everything there, a hundred percent of the proceeds go back to OUR. Everything does. Wow. And so that's our day. Yes, it's a it's a busy week <laughs> weekend. How many businesses did did you have to contact? Did you have any idea how many how many different uh, you know well, businesses um, you spoke to? Yes, a lot. So <laughs> I've spoken over to, um, by email over one hundred and fifty. Wow. Um, I personally have gone out and door knocked. And I've been in businesses in Provo, Spanish Fork, gone in and out. And a lot of times I can't get in because I don't have a key card to get in the door. (laughs) So I'm just trying to walk everywhere, hand out my flyers. We just want people to know about the event and um, come enjoy and and learn more about OUR, become an abolitionist, because that's what our goal is here, is to raise money to save children. Yeah, this, I mean, look, it sounds like, it sounds like there's going to be some great entertainment, some great food, a chance to meet and rub shoulders with some very notable people. But at the, at the base of it all, at the, underneath all of it is the desire to stop the, the trafficking of human beings, particularly children. And I think that's a pretty noble cause to be involved in. Yes, yes. And people, a lot of people don't want to hear about it. They don't want to hear about human trafficking. I have a friend that's like, don't tell me anything. But like Tim Bauer once said in one of his podcasts on on Slave Stiller, uh, you have to lose your innocence to be able to help save these children. Can you imagine if we all uh, ignored it and we said, no, I don't want to hear about it because it just hurts my soul. It'll give me bad dreams. I don't want to hear about it. If we all said that, nothing would get done. These children would not get um, be um, given the gift of freedom. So I'm thankful for Tim Ballard and his jump team and um, all the ex-Navy SEAL and military that are part of this um, eradicating uh, human trafficking because they are the ones that have to lose their innocence, what they see, what they go through to save a child. Okay. They're willing to do the heavy lifting, but they, they yes. need people to help provide the funds that make it possible. So yes. we're, we're down to we're down to about our last two minutes here. Um, I just want to I want to push people towards the website and make sure that they know where to get tickets. And as you mentioned, it's limited seating, so don't yes. don't uh, delay. If you want to be a part of this, this should be of a special interest to my listeners in Southern Utah. Hey, if you're looking for a nice break. From all that beautiful fall weather, come up north. I don't know. Actually, maybe it's probably it's probably nice along the Wasatch, but you know, by early October. Tell us again the website. It is ourrescue.org. So O-U-R-R-E-S-C-U-E dot org. And then you click on the events link, and then under the events you'll see um, all their events that they're having, but you'll see the gift of freedom. The gift of freedom. And it's a two-day event. Yes, but only the first day you need tickets for because it's all the entertainment. Um, And then for the next day on Saturday, if there's businesses out there that would like to donate, um, you can contact me. Um, I can give my email. Okay. Actually, I'll tell you what I'll do. I will put your email in the show notes. So we'll we'll do that off the air because I I don't want somebody driving down the road to, you know, drive off the road (laughs) trying to write it. What was that again? So I will have your email in the show notes, but um, definitely we'll get to get people involved here. If there's one takeaway that you would want our listeners to take away from this conversation, what would that be? I hope that somebody out there has learned something about human trafficking and what these kids go through. And I hope that it does something to their heart, to their soul, and they need 
uh, they want to do something and they want to donate. They want to start their own fundraiser because you can. Everyone can do a little fundraiser, even if it's just a little lemonade stand. Um, everyone can raise money so we can help save a child. And I'll add to that, Brian, quickly is we, we, we lift where we stand. So as my wife says, if those can donate big things, great. If all you can do is a ticket, great. If all you can do is show up and shop, great for you. We'd love to see you. You can participate in multiple ways. That's what we're asking. Get involved. Okay. Kish and Michelle, thank you so much for being on my show. And I wish you the best of success in this. Thank Thanks, you Brian. so much for having appreciate us. I you. appreciate it. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. As you may know, this is uh, National Preparedness Month. Well, for a few more days anyway. And there is a special that I want to make my listeners aware of through uh, one of my sponsors, that being LifesavingFood.com. Yes, it's food storage. This is the ReadyWise food storage line. And some of the things that they have on sale, um, I, I'm going to point out one in particular, but then I want you to know, for my listeners, at least through September 25th, you can save 20% on whatever you buy. But this is one that really caught my attention because... Well, hunting season is upon us, and I know a lot of folks are headed for the hills, whether it's just for the exercise or the camaraderie or maybe to bring something home to put on the table. Here is a hunting bucket. Outdoor meals. This is something new. It's it's $99.99, and this consists of snacks and meals for three full days, six entrees, three breakfasts, three snacks, all packed in a grab-and-go bucket. I mean, this is perfect. Freeze-dried food. All you have to do is add water. You need something quick to snack on. Boom, you've got it. Looking for a drink to boost your calories, boost your protein. There it is. Full meal for breakfast, lunch, or dinner. No problem. Rip open one of the pouches, add water, wait for 10 to 15 minutes, and enjoy. Now, they have a lot of other items as well, including starter food kits or long-term supply, survival kits, 72-hour kits. You get the picture. 20% off when you use the coupon code HYDE, H-Y-D-E, at checkout. There's a link in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Please take advantage of this. This special is good for my listeners only through September 25th. So let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about voluntary cooperation, how it's one of the, the best tools. In fact, it may be the greatest tool for solving human problems. But I don't hear a lot about cooperation these days. And, and I think that's because there's an, a totalitarian mindset that has crept in. And and the, the totalitarians, I'm just going to be blunt, they're in power. You know, they, they seem to think, hey, we've got this thing locked down. We are winning. There's no way they're going to back off. But it's important that we understand what's at stake there. And this recent article from my friend Barry Brownstein is right on the money. Why Totalitarians Promote Hate. Now, you've heard me talk about hate being the unspecified predicate, meaning it's, it's a bogus predicate in that it could be a catch-all for anything I don't like. You put, you put Miracle Whip on my sandwich? Why do you hate? 
good food. Why do you hate me? You know, it, it can be misused. I think he's spot on, though. Barry Brownstein says in upstate New York, 30 Lewis County General Hospital health clinicians resigned rather than take the mandated COVID shot. Six of those who resigned worked in the maternity unit. The hospital shut down the maternity unit until new nurses who are vaccinated can be recruited and hired. Now, other essential services could be curtailed, as 73% of unvaccinated clinicians have yet to decide if they'll quit rather than be vaccinated. And recruitment of new nurses won't be easy since thousands of job openings for nurses in upstate New York are unfilled. Brownstein says, are these unvaccinated nurses and other healthcare professionals the true enemy, as one Democratic consultant called them? In the region served by the hospital, do families soon to experience the birth of a child feel safer now that some of their formerly trusted healthcare professionals have been purged? Are some of the patients wondering why these healthcare professionals would sacrifice their careers? He says illiberal mandates violate bodily autonomy and arguably worsen health outcomes. So why are President Biden's advisors pushing them? Do Biden and his advisors sincerely believe mandates will end the pandemic? If so, James Harrigan explains, well, the logical absurdity of mandates. Or are they, and there's a nice link, by the way, in that article, in his article explaining this, or are they consolidating power by exploiting human nature and borrowing a page from the totalitarian playbook to exacerbate tribal differences? To understand the psychological roots of tribal fractures, he says, let's start with a story that's not about vaccine mandates. Larry David. Yes, that Larry David from TV. He and Alan Dershowitz were close friends for 25 years until Dershowitz became one of Trump's impeachment lawyers. Now, in August, Dershowitz was having a cup of coffee with friends on the porch of a Martha's Vineyard general store. Larry David arrived and started screaming at his former friend. Dershowitz says, we can still talk, Larry. Larry David says, no, no, we, we really can't. I saw you. I saw you with your arm around, um, I think it was former Trump Secretary of State, Pompeo. It's disgusting. Dershowitz says, he's my former student at Harvard Law. I greet all of my former students that way. I can't greet my former students. Larry David says, it's disgusting. Your whole enclave, it's disgusting. You're disgusting. Now, Barry Brownstein points out, This wasn't a publicity stunt for the next season of Curb Your Enthusiasm. If you've ever watched Curb, you know the feelings of disgust run through many episodes. Larry's being called disgusting. He's calling someone or something disgusting. In art, Larry never beats his tormentors. Now, Larry David is 74 years old. Yet, like many of us, he hasn't learned not to toss his psychological trash on the side of the road. And the overwhelming sense of disgust that Larry feels for Alan is in Larry's mind. Angrily denouncing Alan won't solve Larry's problem. Larry can project the idea of disgust onto Alan, but the more he projects, the more he strengthens the idea of disgust in his mind. The more Larry projects, the more he wallows in his psychological trash. Barry Brownstein writes, Projection is our futile attempt to absolve ourselves of responsibility for our thoughts, feelings, and behaviors by denying what exists in us while finding the same qualities in other people. Dershowitz was merely a symbol for how David sees himself. In The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, Stephen Covey wrote, We see the world not as it is, but as we are. 
Of course, Larry's attempt to project is universal. What we block from our awareness, what we don't acknowledge, we seek to hurl out. But projection never works. Our psychological trash does not magically leave our mind when we demonize others. Now, Larry may have felt a temporary catharsis, but he was losing, not gaining, psychological freedom. David's psychological freedom comes from his decision to acknowledge his mind is the causative agent of his experience of reality. Importantly, politicians will exploit the human weakness to project. Using propaganda, they aim to drum into our minds scapegoats onto whom to project, on whom to, onto whom to project what we don't want to acknowledge in ourselves. Individuals who are psychologically free will be less susceptible to totalitarian propaganda. I think I saw a good example, by the way, of, of prop- this uh, totalitarian propaganda. David Frum, I can't remember all of the outfits he writes for, but he's a very nationally renowned writer and commentator and, and author. And I was reading a, a post of his, I think it was on Twitter, talking about how, well, you know, the stigma that we are attaching to the unvaccinated is deserved. It needs to be there. They are making decisions that affect other people and their lack of judgment or their ignorance needs to be stigmatized. And therefore, it's right that we do this. And it's like, wow, that's pretty tone deaf. <laughs> I mean, because because it couldn't be anything besides ignorance that uh, that would keep a person from uh, abstaining from accepting the, the vaccine. It couldn't be that they have questions and, and may wonder, is it really as healthy as I'm being told that it is? Back to Barry Brownstein's article. He next talks about totalitarian movements. And I love this quote from a social philosopher, Eric Hoffer, who observed in The True Believer, mass movements can rise and spread without a belief in God, but never without a belief in a devil. Usually the strength of a mass movement, excuse me, is proportionate to the vividness and tangibility of its devil. So Hoffer recounts that before the final solution, When Hitler was asked whether he thought the Jew must be destroyed, he demurred, we should have then to invent him. It is essential to have a tangible enemy, not just a, not merely an abstract one. Hoffer continued with the story of a Japanese mission that arrived in Berlin in 1932 to study the National Socialist Movement. Journalist Friedrich Voigt asked a member of the mission what he thought of the movement. The visiting delegate replied, It is magnificent. I wish we could have something like it in Japan, only we can't because we haven't any Jews. We haven't got any Jews. Wow. Hoffer found, It is perhaps true that the insight and shrewdness of the men who know how to set a mass movement in motion or how to keep one going manifest themselves much as as much in knowing how to pick a worthy enemy as in knowing what doctrine to embrace or what program to adopt. Now we're going to come back to this in just a few moments, but look, Barry Brownstein, everything I've seen him write has been informative. It has been enlightening, and this is no exception. So there is a link to this in the show notes. If you want to check it out for yourself, go to thebrianheidshow.com, and you will find a link to Barry Brownstein's article, Why Totalitarians Promote Hate. We'll come back and touch on this article, just the other side of these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. A quick shout-out to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. They are in St. George, Utah, but if you are buying a home in Utah, if you're one of the many, many people moving to the Intermountain West and Utah is going to be your landing place, this is the team I would encourage you to get in touch with when it comes to getting a uh, traditional loan, a reverse mortgage, a VA loan. Yep, they've got the experience, they've got the clout to get you the loan that you need and to do it in a timely fashion because in today's real estate market, that actually counts. You can contact Heather at 435-703-4522. If you're in St. George, swing by 619 South Bluff Street. Remember, Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. And Heather's NMLS ID is 715-386. So I'm sharing this article from Barry Brownstein. This was published by the American Institute for Economic Research. And it's about why totalitarians promote hate. You've got to have a, an enemy. And it's, it's, it's great for dividing people, it's great for manipulating people, it's great for promoting fear. And right now, the enemy for a lot of people is the unvaccinated, the unclean. Now keep in mind, there's no proof whatsoever that this unvaccinated person has any illness whatsoever. But the fact that they are not on board with whatever else the herd is doing is enough to make them an enemy at least in the minds of the totalitarians. And sadly, a lot of people have bought into this. Going back to the article here where uh, Barry Brownstein was quoting Eric Hoffer, Brownstein writes, Nazis argued that Jews were vermin that spread disease. And if you thought that most Germans saw through the propaganda and just went along because they were intimidated, well, you'd be wrong. German doctors claimed that Jews were especially responsible for outbreaks of typhus. They published essays claiming that Jewish people's supposedly low cultural level and uncleanliness were to blame. Well, yesterday's low cultural level has morphed into labeling the unvaccinated and those not in step with COVID policy as anti-science, who manifest villainous disregard for the safety of others. Now, after the invasion of Poland, German public health officials repeatedly urged occupation authorities to isolate Jews further from the rest of the population and deny them access to medicine. Now, Brownstein says anti-Semitism wasn't required to support the Nazis. In his essay, Safety is Found in Principles, Not Lies, he tells the story. In his book, They Thought They Were Free, by Milton Meyer, you hear the story of how ordinary Germans, we little people, as they referred to themselves, became Nazis. Meyer befriended these former Nazis and also examined the historical record to verify their stories. Consider policeman Willie Hoffmeister. Meyer relates the story of how in 1938, Hoffmeister was assigned the job of rounding up Jewish males for their own protection. Now, Hoffmeister was no Nazi thug. He was polite and respectful as he carried out his officious but deadly deeds. As Hoffmeister was taking into custody one Jewish man, he recalled being asked why the town synagogue was blown up that day. And he answered, they blew it up as a safety measure. Now today, Barry Brownstein writes, medical professionals are being terminated as a safety measure. No doubt some readers will be outraged by this historical comparison. Willie Hoffmeister was not aware of his mental blinders. Well, similarly, blinders block awareness of many today. Now, of course, not all policymakers advocating mandates have totalitarian goals, yet their good intentions don't matter. 
illiberal means will lead to destructive ends. And in the face of widespread illiberalism, if we are resigned to thinking there is little we can do, we'll get the politicians we deserve. Yet there's much we can do. Understanding psychological freedom undoes the error of projection. And so Barry Brownstein counsels, watch your fear response. Fear is what drives the primitive part of the brain, the amygdala. In his book, The Fundamentalist Mind, Stephen Larson writes, if you wish to induce a state of compliance in your would-be constituency, it is clearly an advantage to frighten them. First, induce the amygdaloid fear response, then offer them a loaded choice, be saved or be damned. To deploy coercive power, totalitarians need your fear. Next, he says, take back your projections. Eric Hoffer explained how totalitarians use a sense of grievance to drive people to submit to authority. Grievances will arise in your mind, but you don't need to hold on to them. Totalitarians can only exploit the hate in your mind that you cultivate. For a moment, forget about the more significant, about more significant social issues and get personal. Take back your personal projections. Learn from Larry David's mistake. If you remain unaware of your projections, politicians will exploit your grievances. Next, he counsels, don't intellectually bully people. No matter what side of an issue you're on, don't make arguments that begin with, there is no other way, or all sensible people know, and the like. Larry Cosme, the president of the nonpartisan pro-vax Federal Law Enforcement Officers Association, offered this guidance. Biden's executive order villainizes employees for reasonable concerns and hesitancies and inserts the federal government into individual medical decisions. People should not be made to feel uncomfortable for making a reasonable medical choice. Next, Barry Brownstein says, see the humanity in others. As Hoffer explained, when we don't see the humanity in others, we provide oxygen to authoritarians. So oppose authoritarianism by seeing the humanity in everyone you meet. The Vienna-born philosopher Martin Buber fed, uh, I hope I'm saying his name right, Buber, <laughs> fled Germany after Hitler came to power. In his best-known work, I and Thou, Buber observed that we see the world in one of two fundamental ways, I, Thou, or I, It. Seeing others as important as oneself is the I, Thou way. But through the I, It lens, others are seen as lesser objects who help us or are obstacles that get in our way. By the way, that pretty well describes how sociopaths see the world. So watch your mind as, you're, as you eye it your way through the day. The supermarket clerk who moves slower than you would like. The customer service representative not solving your problem. The driver who cuts you off on the highway. Watch how your mind turns them into its. Awareness of your thinking pattern helps you make different choices. Next, he counsels take responsibility. Hoffer wrote, there is no telling to what extremes of cruelty and ruthlessness a man will go when he is freed from the fears, hesitations, doubts, and vague stirrings of decency that go with individual judgment. Hoffer continued, when we lose our individual independence in the corporateness of a mass movement, we find a new freedom, freedom to hate, bully, lie, torture, murder, and betray without shame and remorse. He says, herein undoubtedly lies a part of the attractiveness of a mass movement. We find there the right to dishonor, 
which, according to Dostoevsky, has an irresistible fascination. Hoffer taught that there are high personal and societal costs when individuals renounce their personal responsibility. And finally, he says, respect the extended order. In his book, The Fatal Conceit, Frederick Hayek explored the extended order, which is an order that, the, that is the product of voluntary human cooperation, not an order or a designed order based on coercion. Hayek wrote, Our civilization depends not only for its origin, but also for its preservation, on what can be precisely described only as the extended order of human cooperation, an order more commonly, if somewhat misleadingly, known as capitalism. Jonah Goldberg has observed, The market system is so good at getting people from all over the world to work together that we barely notice how much we're cooperating. Now, the residents of upstate New York now have fewer medical options. They're noticing the impact of less human cooperation as controls undermine the rights of individuals to make personal medical decisions. Brownstein says most of us would perish without the extended order. The few survivors would revert to a primitive existence. He says, today, notice how much you depend on human cooperation for fully stocked supermarkets, UPS and FedEx deliveries, the Internet, electricity, and on and on. Totalitarians reduce human cooperation. Don't be a cheerleader for their illiberal schemes. Cultivate your psychological freedom to be less susceptible to totalitarian propaganda. Amen. Absolutely. He says, as human cooperation decreases and hatred increases, you too, not just the people the mandates are directed against, will suffer. The oxygen of capitalism is cooperation. The oxygen of totalitarians is hatred for differences. I like to put it this way, too. I think it was uh, my friend, the late uh, Will Grigg, who put it this way. He said it's more important, you, you should love liberty more than you hate your enemies. Think about that for a second. What is it that's driving your desire to speak out, to stand up, to be counted? Is it love of something? Is it hatred of something? Wouldn't you rather be known for what you stand for than simply what you're against? This is The Brian Hyde Show. trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. This is the place, as my good friend Brigham Young once said. I'm sorry. He was not my good friend, but uh, he did say this is the place. (laughs) And this is where we gather for wrong think on a very regular basis. I'm glad you're part of our audience today. My goal is not to scare you or make you angry or otherwise leave you feeling just frustrated and agitated at all the crazy stuff that's going on. And there's nothing you can do about it because the fact of the matter is there's a lot that you and I can do. And hopefully uh, by the end of this hour of the show, you will feel more informed, more empowered, and who knows, maybe even just a little bit inspired that, uh, that all is not lost. 
Before I get to uh, the content, let me thank my sponsors, including MonticelloCollege.org, also the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, and LifesavingFood.com, who, by the way, is offering a 20% discount to my listeners. This is food storage. This is legit 25-year shelf life food storage. It's the ReadyWise brand of food storage. But if you will go to the link that I provide in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com, look around their website. Maybe you'll find something. I was, I was just looking at some of their starter food kits. Here's a prepper pack, 52 servings of food, and a nice stackable bucket, easy grab-and-go handle. It's 100 bucks. A hunting bucket. For somebody headed for the hills who's looking for, you know, three full days, six entrees, three breakfasts, three snacks, again, a hundred bucks. I like this one too, the seven day emergency dry bag. This one is one oh nine ninety nine, but it's it's sixty servings of entree meals in a roll top dry bag. I know there's been a lot of flooding of late that uh, has got people's attention. If you needed something to keep your food dry and yet to be available in an emergency, something you could take with you, again, something to look at. Just remember to use my name, H-Y-D-E, that's your coupon code at checkout for that 20% discount. This offer is only good through September 25th. All right, where to begin? A lot of different uh, cultural and political divisions that we're seeing right now. And and I know that solution-minded people are like, okay, fine, what can we do about it? I'm one of those people who's asking, what can we do? I will tell you this much, I don't think... The problems and the divisions that we see right now are anything that's going to be solved by voting. Now, that doesn't mean I think you're dumb if you engage in politics. A lot of people feel like this is this is a good use of their time and their moral energy. That's your decision to make. But there's a word that I think should be on more people's minds, and that is the word secession. Now, some people immediately hearken, Oh, we tried that back in the 1860s. It did not end well. No, that, uh, that quest for Southern independence did not end well. And I'm still not convinced that, uh, you know, the side that won was necessarily standing on the moral high ground. Man compelled to live under a government he does not wish to live under is uh, a slave. That's Lysander Spooner saying that. So, you know, put away the pitchforks and torches. I'm, I'm just pointing out something that I think uh, he nailed when he, when he pointed that out. But there are prospects for soft secession and even individual secession in which you limit as much as possible or separate as much as possible yourself from whatever, you know, whatever governmental agency or governmental entity is trying to inflict its will upon you. Jeff Deist in, from the uh, Von Mises Institute in a talk that he gave in Turkey to the, to the Property and Freedom Society conference, talks about soft secession. I want to give you just a couple of excerpts of what he talked about here. 1930, he says, Columbia professor Carl Llewellyn published The Bramble Bush, his famous tract on how to think about and study law. And Llewellyn urged readers to consider both law and custom when seeking to understand a society. To recognize the difference between the black letter legal codes, and the day-to-day practices of state officials and citizens. Now, when there was no sanction, the author instructed, there was no law. In other words, we should focus on the substance of things at least as much as we focus on the form. And Jeff Deist says, that's an important lesson for how we view the United States today. 
with an eye toward what's actually happening on the ground among people and institutions rather than legal formalisms. He says a few years ago on a panel discussion at an event in Vienna, Dr. Hans Hermann Hoppe made an offhand remark that I found very interesting. Paraphrasing him, he said that nationalist movements in the 19th and 20th centuries were largely centralizing, while the nationalist movements of the 21st century were largely decentralist in character. Breakaway movements represented by Brexit, Taiwan, Scotland, Catalonia, and others. Donald Trump also represented a breakaway movement of sorts away from D.C., but of course this possibility went totally unfulfilled. Now Jeff Deist says, this strikes me as an important insight. What we know as today's map of Europe is really countries cobbled together from principalities, city-states, kingdoms, dukedoms, and the EU seeks but has not achieved total dominion over them as a supranational government. What we think of the U.S. is really an incredibly disparate set of regions which became 50 states over which the U.S. federal government asserts almost total control. And in both cases, cities became politically, economically, and culturally dominant. So our topic today in the context of the U.S. is this. What if the greatest political trend of the past 200 years, namely the centralization of state power, reverses in the 21st century. What if this century is not about ideology, but about separation and location? And what if COVID has dramatically laid bare this possibility? Now, he points out that empires desperately fear losing control over their provinces. And exactly that appears to be happening in the U.S. Those of us on the anti-interventionist right sometimes forget that D.C. is very much an imperial power, with respect to the 50 states, not just in the Middle East. So any discussion of soft secession and its prospects in the U.S. starts with identifying domestic pushback against this empire. And contra the self-styled progressive saviors, any political arrangement which denies people the right to walk away personally, or peacefully rather, is not liberal by definition. So what do we mean by soft secession versus hard secession? It's more than de facto versus de jure, because everything about American laws and political norms already became blurred over the past century. De facto violations of constitutional provisions, for example, become de jure over time, by operation of federal regulations or the terrible Supreme Court. Garay Garrett's 1944 essay, The Revolution Was explains this as a revolution within the form. Everything ostensibly remained the same, a constitution, 50 states, three branches of government. But the country was overthrown a 100 years ago, beginning with Woodrow Wilson and reaching full form in FDR's New Deal. But America's second revolution was managerial, a seizing of jurisdiction over every aspect of life by a centralized federal bureaucracy. So by soft secession, we mean a counter-revolution within the form. Aggressive federalism, regionalism, localism, and an aggressive subsidiarity principle operating in de facto opposition to the federal state, or at least sidestepping it. Now, sometimes this could take the form of direct nullification or even flouting of federal edicts, which it turns out are fairly hard to enforce without the support of local populations. 
Biden's vaccine mandates will be an instructive test of this. Several governors have already filed suits, or it can take the form of legal gray areas, as we've seen with more liberal U.S. states in their approach to immigration sanctuaries and marijuana laws. Also, soft secession sidesteps the thorniest issues. What to do about federal land, federal entitlements, debt, the dollar, military bases and personnel, nuclear weapons. Now, hard secession, by contrast, that would mean an outright division of the U.S. into two or more new political entities, complete with their own boundaries and governments and a surviving rump state. This is far more difficult. Among other obstacles, there's a Reconstruction-era Supreme Court case which claims the various states must agree to let a particular state secede. Yet the possibility remains, and this scenario could be reasonably peaceful or it could be quite violent. It could look just like the former Soviet Union and the Baltics, or it could look like the former Yugoslavia. But this is far less likely, absent an outright economic collapse. We're going to come back to Jeff Deist's article here in just a few moments. And I don't know if it scares you, just even hearing the word secession. Oh, man, that's a cuss word for some people. But it shouldn't be. Look, if the relationship isn't working, why shouldn't uh, one or both parties agree to peacefully walk away? But for some reason, the government just can't quit us, can it? (laughs) We'll be back right after these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Just so you know, I always have links to the various articles or to the guests that I have on this program. You'll find them in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. I have it on good authority that uh, other talk show hosts may actually use those notes as uh, some of their own show prep, and I'm happy to help them out. I'm just trying to pass along some of the better information that I find in the course of a day's work. And by the way, if you really want to dig in and have some fun, I would encourage you to consider becoming a subscriber, which means a, a regular supporter of my program. I'm not aiming to get rich. I'm not aiming for you to see me cruising around in a, in a brand new Tesla or whatever. I just, uh, everything, every person who becomes a member, every person who helps to support this program is helping me to focus on finding and sharing the best information that I can while simultaneously keeping the wolves away from the doorstep. And I greatly appreciate it. Just something to consider. So I'm sharing this article about soft session prospects for America. This is from Jeff Deist. It's from a speech that he gave in Turkey not so long ago. At, a, at an economic or a prosperity conference, or property conference, rather. And, and he makes the, the distinction between soft secession, which takes place within the framework of what we already have, uh, that being a, a federal framework where the states have rights, they have powers, they have authority that the federal government does not. But too often they don't assert that. And it's most likely tied to funding, at least to start out. There may be some other considerations. Hard secession, though, that is like a clear division. We break up into new political entities with their own boundaries, their own governments, and so forth. He says, we need to understand that America is less a country than an economic arrangement. It's an arrangement about land, 
and jobs and capital. It's about subsidies like Social Security and Medicare. It's about cheap imports, a good distribution system, and a strong U.S. dollar relative to other currencies. Calvin Coolidge famously said, the chief business of the American people is business. Now, that's not all bad, and it's far better than nothing, but it's held together by an increasingly shaky political arrangement. America as a place has lost its sense of meaning or shared commonalities. And Jeff Deist says, I don't know how long this economic arrangement can or will last, but the point is, if it fails, there is no social or cultural arrangement underpinning it. So what are the prospects for soft secession in the U.S.? Well, it's impossible to give odds. But surely, he says, the possibility is far higher today than at any time in recent U.S. history. In fact, those prospects are higher now than two weeks ago before Biden announced his vaccine mandates. They're higher now than when Biden was elected, despite his promises of bringing the country together. They are far higher now than before COVID, as masks, vaccines, lockdowns, and travel restrictions have divided the American public in remarkable new ways over the past year and a half. They're higher now than when Trump was elected in a brutally divisive election, higher now than after the Bush versus Gore debacle in 2000 created the idea of red versus blue state. And they're higher now than in the turbulent 60s and 70s when civil rights, feminism, Roe v. Wade, birth control, and radical social change rolled the country. Those prospects are probably the highest they've been since the terrible 1860s. Now here's the bright side. He says, COVID has given us a great gift, the gift of clarity. Over 18 months, we've learned that all crises are local. For 18 months, it has mattered very much whether you live in Florida or New York, whether you live in Sweden or Australia. And the physical analog world reasserted itself with a vengeance. No matter where you are, no matter how rich you may be, you must exist in corporal reality. You need housing, food, clean water, energy, and medical care in the most physical sense. You need last-mile delivery, no matter what's happening in the broader world. Your local situation suddenly mattered quite a bit in 2020. It was the year localism reasserted itself. Now, whether your local reality was dysfunctional or did not matter a bit, or did not matter quite a bit in the terrible COVID year, And people are waking up to the simple reality of this dysfunction. We know the federal government can't manage COVID. I mean, it can't manage Afghanistan. It can't manage debt or the dollar or spending or entitlements. It can't even run federal elections, for God's sake, much less provide security or justice or social cohesion. So how can it manage a country of 330 million people? How can it manage 50 states? Whether we want to call it the Great Awakening or the Great Realignment, something profound is happening. Imagine if the 21st century reverses the dominant trend of the 19th and 20th, namely the centralization of political power in national and even supranational governments. What if we were about to embark on an experiment in localism and regionalism simply due to the sheer inability of modern national governments to manage day-to-day reality? He says a kind of centrifugal force is at work. Here in the U.S., people are self-segregating, both ideologically and geographically. That's part and parcel of any sort of soft secession. Moving is best 
most direct sorting mechanism. It's the best, most direct sorting mechanism we could possibly hope for. A recent survey by United Van Lines confirms what we already knew. People are fleeing California, New York, New Jersey, and Illinois for Texas, Idaho, Florida, and Tennessee. This is simple flight from the dysfunction of big cities and unworkable progressive policies laid bare by the analog lessons of COVID. And he says we should cheer this. If just 10% of Americans hold reasonable views on politics, economics, and culture, that would constitute 33 million people. We could coalesce as a significant political force. And this nation within a nation would be larger and more economically powerful than many European countries. So he's saying that a once-in-a-generation opportunity is before us, and we ought to cheer when Americans lose faith in our system due to Trump or COVID or Afghanistan or public opinion polls which show a deeply divided and skeptical country. Now, I'm going to skip ahead because he goes into a great deal of... of, uh, he goes into a lot of detail about, is this great sort necessarily illiberal? He talks about the mirage of universalism. But here's the conclusion. He says, I'm going to close with this. The pushback we're witnessing in America and across the West is directly proportional to the speed and ferocity with which progressives have advanced, advanced their agenda in the past five years. Reactionaries are reacting to something. It's not just in their heads. Trump had to happen. Brexit had to happen. It was never about Trump's policies or personnel. It was about 70 million Americans willing to go off script and vote against Hillary Clinton, the embodiment of deterministic, progressive, arc notion of history. Both Trump and Brexit were proto-secessionist events. American progressives have essentially been in a state of psychological coping and vengeance ever since. He says, left progressives oppose the decentralization of political power for a very simple reason. They believe they are winning. So why would they let anyone walk away? They will always portray breakaway movements as nativist or racist or nationalistic. They can't help themselves. This is the white savior complex of today's progressive West. Thus, the way forward is to demonstrate enough resistance, hard, soft, and insufficient numbers to make them question their own doctrine of inevitability. He says even soft secession offers the left an opportunity to have more of what they want. The whole panoply of progressive policies right here and right now, but not everywhere. And he says that's an offer they should take and a bargain compared to real violence or civil war. Some people in the left, on the left in the U.S. are starting to get it. We don't vote our way out of this. We attempt to separate, to unyoke ourselves politically. Our old polarities of individual versus state and public versus private no longer provide satisfying answers to the questions of our day. And so, like it or not, this will almost certainly require some kind of organic nationhood and probably some amount of geographic concentration to accomplish. But he says it's the price to be paid by people of all ideological stripes, and that's abandoning that naive dream of universalism. I think he's making a good case for this. What do you think? This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. 
Quick shout out here to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. If you are within the sound of my voice and you are either residing or looking to reside in the state of Utah, and you're looking for a home loan, I want you to talk to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage because they can get you the loan you need at the best rates possible and time is of the essence. We don't know how long the interest rates are going to stay low. We know that the real estate market is moving at light speed. Give her a call at 435-703-4522. If you're in St. George, Utah, stop by 619 South Bluff Street to visit the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. Her NMLS ID is 715386, and Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. So here's a question for you. Why is it so hard to save money? Now, I don't know, maybe maybe somebody in the, in the household, you know, just has access to a debit card or a credit card and they just can't help themselves. But I think there's something more going on here. I came across an article written, man, it's been eight or nine years ago, by Paul Rosenberg. And he explains how thrift used to be one of the core values of a free and self-reliant people, but somehow it's been strangled out of existence. I thought you might appreciate some of his insights on this. He says, thrift is far more important than is commonly understood. And he says, I'll be explaining why in a future dispatch. He does write about it, by the way. And if if you haven't subscribed to freemansperspective.com, you're really missing out. This, This guy has some really terrific insights. But he says, first, we need to dispel the guilt many of us feel about thrift. And this is, he says, there's actually a very good reason why it's so hard to save money nowadays. Rosenberg says, I think most of my readers will recognize the feeling I'm referring to. You read great books on success like The Richest Man in Babylon. You understand that saving at least 10% of your paycheck is necessary for success. And you go out to do it, but obstacles keep getting in your way. And then you feel bad. You feel that you failed. You don't really want to think about thrift anymore. Well, he says, I'm here to tell you that you were far too hard on yourself. It wasn't your fault. Okay, if you were knocking back brews at a bar four times every week, that was your fault. But he says, I don't think many readers fall into that category. The problem, as he explains it, is thrift has been systematically strangled over the past century. It's now just barely possible. And you've been blaming yourself for the sins of others. And remember, most of those success books were written before thrift was dead. So the simple reason that it's so hard to save money in today's world starts by asking the question, and this is when analyzing the economics of civilizations, the big question is, where does the surplus go? So in Greece, for example, surplus was generated by the labor of slaves and went to the citizen or property owner, who tended to be a very good judge of where and how to use it best. In Western civilization, surplus was generally left in the hands of the person who earned it, who also tended to be a good judge of how to best use it. Through the past hundred years of a declining Western civilization, the movement of surplus was radically transformed. It was skimmed away in thicker and thicker layers to growing governments in capital cities. The result of this is the current situation. Essentially, all surplus is skimmed away from the producer. And this is accomplished with direct taxes like income taxes, as well as with the hidden tax of inflation, real estate taxes, sales taxes, and dozens of other taxes on your phone bill, your electric bill, gasoline, liquor, etc. 
In other words, it's so hard to save money because the government takes so much of it away. Now, we're so used to this situation that we fail to remember this wasn't always the case. That's why we feel guilty about not being able to save money. And he says, and we shouldn't. There's a large army of state employees who work every day to remove our surplus from our hands. Aside from acting especially stupidly, he says it really isn't our fault. So how was it in 1890? He says, if you're like most of us, you had great-grandparents who worked hard, saved their money, and improved their situation in life. It was normal to do so in the later 19th century, even until the First World War. Great-grandfather got ahead. You just work as hard, or you work just as hard, rather, but you don't make much progress. And the reason is for this, the reason for it is this: when Gramps, when Great Gramps worked hard, he kept the money. See, in Grandpa's day, there was no income tax, there was no sales tax. The government survived anyway. There was no social security tax either, and believe it or not, the streets were never full of starving old people. Families were able to take care of their own. Rosenberg says we've forgotten that it was once possible for an average person to accumulate money. Mechanics, carpenters, shop owners, and people like them filled their bank accounts with gold and silver. It was common for people like bakers and carriage builders to make serious business loans and to retire comfortably, living off their investments. In those days before mass taxation and fiat currency, young men would go out to make their fortune. And by the way, fortune didn't mean multiple billions. It meant enough capital for the rest of your life. So young men would go where money was being made. They would work hard, cooperate with similar young men, learn everything they could from the older men, save, invest, learn how to succeed, and then return home as a prosperous adult. Now, not every man, not every young man went out to build a fortune, and some certainly failed. But these activities were not punished at the time, which made them much easier than they are today. Gathering a fortune was common enough that it was built into the mating strategy at the time. Many women would agree to marriage only after a young man had made something of himself. And this mating strategy was legislated out of existence, which is too bad, because it was generally a far healthier strategy than what developed in its wake. And he has a graph here in this article, and there's a link in the show notes so you can follow this for yourself, that shows the difference between you and your great-grandfather. The top line in the graph shows how many years of living expenses your grandfather would have accumulated as a hard-working young man. The bottom line shows what you can save. It's a huge difference. After working for five years, great-gramps had seven years of living expenses in the bank. Doing the same thing, you'd have less than two. In the modern world, everyone's fortune is taxed away as it is being formed and what is being saved is eroded by the creation of currency. He's talking about inflation. Very few of us ever get beyond escape velocity to accumulate money. In other words, we work all our lives just to more or less stay even. With surplus removed from individuals, all investment capital is forced through institutions. Money is not saved. It's obtained from banks. Finance has been centralized and removed from the hands of individuals. In the 19th century, productive people made loans. In the 20th century, their children shuffled into banks and begged for loans. But he says, Grandpa wasn't really better than you. The worst part of this is the mass demoralization. People began to feel morally weak, which generally happened in the name of compassion. Here's how the trick worked. 
Your money is taken from you before it can accumulate, leaving you with barely enough to live a reasonable life. You have nothing left to help those who suffer unjustly, not because you don't work, but because your surplus is continually skimmed away. And number three, politicians imply that you're a bad person for not wanting to help the poor. So not only do the cultural elite make it impossible for you to give, but they insult you for it. And then, of course, they spend the money they skimmed from you on armies of government employees who deliver a small fraction of your money to the poor. Now, on the other hand, your great-grandparents were proud to help their friends and neighbors. They felt good about themselves. They felt compassion for others. And they were proud to make the world a better place. Being robbed of this heritage, Paul Rosenberg says, was far worse than the loss of surplus. So the question of why money is so hard to save has been answered. Now, if only the steps from here were so simple. I actually was talking with a friend yesterday about uh, building an economic system, building a community that would really be sustainable. And I got to hand it to my friend. He is, he is light years ahead of me, both in his cognitive abilities and in his ability to just formulate and think, you know, what could be. And he laid out a plan for me, and I, I've, only, I've only skimmed the plan. I have not given it, you know, the deep dive. But it looks, it looks very workable. I think it's actually, it's a brilliant plan. And I think the time will come for it. But like I told him, I said, I think the biggest problem that you're going to have is most people just aren't ready for this kind of information. And they won't be until they have no choice but to find something other than a system which skims away their money from them and, and you know, acts like it's doing them a favor. That's the price you pay for, you know, a civilized society. I don't know. I look at what uh, what government is doing at so many different levels and I think, there may be such a thing as too much civilization, or at least it seems to be uh, taking whatever it's doing in, in some really uncomfortable directions. I'll have a link to Paul Rosenberg's article in the show notes, which you can check out for yourself at thebrianhideshow.com. We'll take a quick break. We'll be back right after this. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back. Please don't forget to check out the uh, 20% off sale going on with lifesavingfood.com. There's a link in the show notes. This offer is good for my listeners, but only through September 25th as we round out National Preparedness Month. So whether you're thinking to go big or go small, if you're just looking for some great food storage deals, this would be a great time to jump on it. Again, it's lifesavingfood.com. Check out my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Now, the most disturbing aspect, at least to me, of American mainstream media is uh, the lack of objectivity. And yet... Here's what makes it disturbing. So many outlets still pretend like, oh, no, no, we're upright. We're objective reporters of fact. Rather than simply stenographers for the powers that be or deceptive partisan shills or something else. 
the editorial staff at Issues and Insights actually comes right out and says, look, Americans need a new media. This caught my attention because I think this is something that you and I actually can help make happen. Their editorial says, the news media can be anything they want to be. There are no laws that demand them to be objective, fair, truthful, or accurate. Consequently, we have an army of journalists who are nakedly biased, vainly divisive, childishly spiteful, and purposely destructive. They say we can only hope our free market economy responds to the great business opportunity at hand before the press and its democratic allies make doing so impossible as they work to shut down free enterprise. At one time, long before radio, television, and the Internet, the newspapers in this country were party organs. Wikipedia, citing the work of university researchers, explains that prior to the 1830s, a majority of U.S. newspapers were aligned with a political party or platform. This was called partisan press and was not unbiased in opinion. Now, the newspapers of the day didn't pretend to be objective reporters of fact. Their bias was known and accepted. Not a problem. Today, however, the media, with a few exceptions, try to cover themselves in a veneer of objectivity when in reality they are the modern newsletter of the Democratic Party and the progressive agenda. Those who aren't part of their tribe are lied to, sneered at, and marginalized by journalists who not only want to establish a political society while killing our civil society, but want to ensure they're part of the elite that enjoys the privilege and status of power. From the TV networks to the major daily newspapers to sophomoric gab shows, the media are in the business of lying, covering up, and or ignoring truth that hurts Democrats, instilling fear, creating an environment in which government can more easily control people who've already been freed through revolution, and othering and gaslighting dissenters. As an institution, the press has been almost wholly taken over by a collection of liberty-loathing progressives, resentful leftists, neo-Marxists, aspiring tyrants, busybodies, bitter scolds, Keith Olbermann, I'm looking at you for that one, elitists, anti-Americans, and angry juvenile activists, a composition identical to that of the Democratic Party. For those who doubt this, consider the Democrats' most recent proposal to subsidize left-leaning newspapers with taxpayer money. Enough. Issues and Insights editorial staff says, America needs a new media that will challenge the status quo, the way Fox dared to go against NBC, CBS, ABC, and CNN. But it needs to be on a larger scale that includes newspapers, even entire chains, websites, social media platforms, television, even radio programming. The Democratic Party has become the party of the rich, but conservatives and libertarians still have money to invest in a future of respectable journalism that produces objective news and truthful opinion that exposes the left. We're not disregarding the frontliners already out there. There are more than a few outlets, whether blogs, actual and web-based newspapers, network shows, or radio talkers, that we respect and rely on. But more is needed. American and Western culture are worth saving. And this country is the last best hope for a liberated humanity. Rescue it from the media. Let me tell you what that that says to me. 
We need more voices out there. We don't need to create the one true media outlet. We just need to do what we can to build more platforms from which the truth can be spoken. More platforms where things don't have to be strained through the net of the the fact checkers who are trying to keep us, you know, on the narrative. I've been a part of this project now for a few years. I've helped build and launch two streaming, you know, full-time networks. They're app-based. They're right there on your smartphone. And it's a lot of work. And, and by the way, I don't have it all figured out. We've, we've learned a lot, uh, the people I've worked with over the years as we've done this. But I'm convinced we need more voices. We need more platforms, more people, whether it's blogging or whatever. I only mention this because there's a, there's a chance you may feel as though there's a message you need to be speaking. There's a truth that you need to, to speak. Speak it. And don't worry about, oh, but I'm only reaching, you know, five people or I'm not even reaching that many people. The size of the audience doesn't matter. I know every every radio programmer within earshot just went, what? (laughs) Audience is everything. But when it comes to publishing the truth, when it comes to being a source of truth and light, if, you're, if your message is crafted to attract the largest possible audience, there's a pretty good chance that your message has been dumbed down or watered down to make it more um, appealing to the masses. Look, I don't want to sound like I'm being condescending here, but you don't want the masses. Because the masses don't want what you have to offer. They're not interested in truth. They're not interested in in things that are, are substantive. What they want is accolades. They want to be told how awesome they are. They want to be told, you know, that there's nothing better than them. They want things that are soft and easy to hear, not things that actually cut through the fluff and, and identify the problems and, more importantly, identify the actions that need to be taken. So whatever you may think, if you've got, if you've got a voice or if you have a message that needs to be spoken or written or published or broadcast, You need to do it. The barriers have never been lower. I mean, starting a podcast is really simple. And I know it's, well, what are you trying to do? Tell everybody to go out there and compete with you? Absolutely, I am. And it's not because I'm so confident my message is the better message. Neener, neener. (laughs) You know, good luck. It's because there are people out there, and, and I don't mean people with great experience in, in writing or broadcasting, but just people who understand truth, who recognize the difference between truth and error, and feel the need to say something about it. I mean, for crying out loud, um, you go to a place like anchor.fm, and you'll find virtually every tool you need right there. You download that app to your smartphone. They've got the bumper music. They've got the transitions that you can put in. If, if people, uh, you can have people leave voice messages for you and actually incorporate those into your show. They can put sponsors. They can connect you up with sponsors. You don't have to take the world by storm. But my message is, is simply this. If there's truth that you feel, feel compelled or you feel called is probably the better word. Truth that you feel called to share. You should do it. 
and don't wait until you're ready. You know, don't wait until, well, I want to be perfectly squared away. I want to be as polished as Dick Clark on New Year's Eve there at uh, Times Square. Just start. Truth be told, any imperfections that you have, any uh, any mistakes that you made are not, are not necessarily going to be seen as, you know, detracting from your message. In fact, for, for some people, it may actually work because it, it shows there's an authenticity there. You're not just some slick, blow-dried, you know, spinmeister, you know, telling people what they should think. You're a legit person with a legit message. I know this isn't for everybody. And yes, it will require sticking your neck out. And yes, as you start to have impact, you'll know because you will start to attract opposition. The only time I ever get really worried that uh, maybe I'm not reaching the people that I need to be reaching is when opposition stops. When there's nobody picking me apart or making snide comments. Mr. Snarly, I'm looking your direction. But as long as that opposition is there, I have pretty good confidence that I'm in the right place. What's the saying? You know, you only catch flack when you're over the target. All right. That's how it works. So, answer the call. Stand up. Be counted. Your voice matters, whether it's polished or not. We're suffering a time of truth deficiency, and you and I can help uh, address that problem and maybe even solve it. This is The Brian Hyde Show.